0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll just read the first few verses, verses 1 through 3. We'll be reading a lot of verses this morning, or at least I'll be reading a lot of verses, but from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the first three I think will suffice. So beginning in verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And we'll stop there. So, Paul is uh, changing topics, and he is still answering questions. Uh, Previously, he was asked a lot of questions about marriage, about being single, about being married. Now, they're changing gears to a topic that we don't spend a lot of time thinking of in the day-to-day, and that is, as he says, verse 1, concerning things offered to idols. Now, the Corinthians grew up in a uh, pagan society, Uh, If you think that uh, our society and culture can be godless, um, Corinth was more so. Uh, But not godless in the sense that they did not have gods. They had many gods. And those gods had many temples. And in those temples, many things that we would consider gross and absurd and inappropriate took place in the worship of those gods. And now there were Corinthian people who had heard the gospel and the message of Jesus and had trusted the one true God for salvation. And so they are being saved out of that kind of pagan idolatry. And as they're coming out of that pagan idolatry, they are met with the reality that they are still living in a pagan culture, even while they themselves are followers of Jesus Christ. Where they lived, idols were worshipped. The streets that they walked down had vendors on either side that sold figurines, statues, household gods. And where they ate were often places adorned with idolatry. And even where they bought food, the food that they bought would be inexplicably, uh, in a way that could not be untangled, associated to what was offered in temples to these false gods. And it was a very difficult position for them because on the one hand, they wanted to get away from worship of these pagan gods that had corrupted their fathers, that had led them to personally do sinful and evil things in the past. And on the other hand, they live in the place that they live. And when the place that you live is so saturated by sinful things that you can't buy groceries without being confronted with the reality that Somewhere down the line, there's a good chance that what you're buying was connected to the worship of false gods. In this text, he's dealing with the reality that in everyday worship of these false gods, animals were being offered as sacrifices. Blood was being shed. Burnt offerings of the animal's skin was being made. And when a burnt offering took place, in all these temples all around this major city of Corinth, a portion of that animal that was brought would get consumed in the fire to offer to that God, burned. Another portion of it would get offered to the priests for them to, you know, the priest of that God to live and to have sustenance off of. But then what the priest could not eat immediately was sold into the marketplace. And that money, those funds that uh, was generated by that sale would go into the priest's coffers and the temple coffers. Now, we're not unfamiliar with calls for us to boycott this and boycott that. There were Christians then who were dealing with the real conflict of conscience. Is it okay to buy meat in the marketplace when I have no idea if what I'm buying and what I'm paying for is in some way, disconnected though it may be, going to support what's happening in these temples, in these you know, places where idols are being worshipped, where people are committing these acts in worship of their God that now I know are evil and wrong. And so they're really wrestling with this. And I, I think understandably so. And there are some who approached this with the understanding that there is no such thing as real idols, real false gods. There's one true God, and everything else is a false imitation of what worship of that one true God should look like, a corrupt version of what humans were created to do, which was glorify God. Everything else is not real, it's phony. Paul will go as far as to say in Corinthians that it, it is uh, satanic, it is evil, it is corrupted. That Satan uses the worship and the perpetuation of these false idols to lead people away from the one true God. But there is no real worship of a real God taking place in these temples. And so there were people who saw it as a Christian liberty, that they could buy meat and eat meat without engaging in some corrupting, worshipful experience to this false god. But there were others who were more sensitive. And I think understandably so. Even though they knew there was only one true God, there was nothing spiritually contaminating about what meat they might buy on this side of the street versus meat they might buy on this side of the street. Even though they knew that, Their conscience was still convicted, probably and understandably, because they had a personal experience with the evil associated with these gods that was just too much to overcome. When I say too much to overcome, what I mean is their own personal experience with immorality here, whether things that they themselves had done or loved ones that were still under the sway of these things, could not be alleviated by the knowledge that there was nothing actually contaminated in the food. It was too much for them to get past. And so the question gets written to Paul. What do we do? We have a disagreement. Some say you can eat this meat sacrificed to idols. Others say you can't eat it. And Paul, through the rest of chapter 8, is going to reason through it. And it's really... Powerful stuff to hear him reason through this. But before we do that, this week I just want to look at the message in these first three verses because this is what's going to govern Paul's approach to a difficult and a very personal question. He writes again, verse 1, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, If you're a Christian person, and Paul is writing to Christians, we know that there is a basic knowledge and understanding of God that comes with being a Christian. There is a knowledge of who the one true God is, there is a knowledge of who his son is, there is a knowledge of sin and the need for salvation, there is a knowledge of what the Christian should do and how the Christian should live. And it may not be a complete knowledge to answer every single question you have about the Bible or every single question you have about what you should do in life. But if you are a Christian, we all have knowledge. So what he's getting ready to to do, unfolding this particular issue for them so that they can understand it rightly and understand their obligations, it's not a condemnation of anyone to ignorance. We all have knowledge. But then comes this warning. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. When we read that knowledge puffs up, I don't think this is a really hard principle for us to relate to and understand. If you have ever started a job and you're the rookie, you're the guy, the woman who has no idea what he or she is doing, and you get sent to somebody to train with them, you get, I think, for the most part one of two kinds of trainers you get the kind that is going to kind of patiently and encouragingly say you'll get it you'll get there this is how you do you know this and this is how you do this right and then there's the other kind of trainer who looks at you like you're an idiot because you don't know how to do the job that you were just hired to do and oh this is so obvious and this is so clear and I've been doing this for 20 years and I know what we're doing he can't even do this and he can't even do that and Knowledge, in and of itself, carries the danger that it inflates a person with pride. And it can do this with the silliest things in the world. You can become prideful. I, I mean, I work in a warehouse. I have seen people become prideful about their knowledge of how to wrap pallets with stretch wrap. I talk about something that no one should be bragging about. <laughs> it's not that hard to wrap a pallet. But knowledge that's what knowledge does. Knowledge gives us a sense that we know what someone else doesn't, and so we are in some way superior. Again, in some way. Maybe not every way, but superior in our knowledge. For the Christian, we are repeatedly warned about the danger of pride. And so when we think about what we know about God, and when we think about how much of God's word we understand, and we think about our mastery of a subject... Not that any of that is wrong. In fact, we're going to go to great lengths this morning to demonstrate it's not. But we should think about it in the context with the framework of understanding that knowledge and the pursuit of it carries with it a danger. And the danger is that we become so prideful and puffed up about what we know that we start to act with a sense of superiority towards those who don't know what we know. Knowledge, in and of itself, disconnected from the love of God that should accompany it in a Christian's life, creates a prideful problem for people. On the other hand, he says, but love edifies. Now, edifies is not a word we use a lot, but edify means to build up, to strengthen. Knowledge puffs one's self up individually makes one feel superior but love builds other people up builds the body of Christ love actually causes growth you know there's a difference between something that is just inflated and something that is actually grown there's a difference between a bubble that looks real puffed up but you pop it and there's nothing there and someone who has actually grown and is actually reaching spiritual maturity in Christ, there's a density in that, in love. That is not there in just prideful knowledge. And this is where Paul starts. And then verse 2. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. In other words, if anyone is going to step forward and say, I'm the master of this topic, he is not approaching that from the humility that a Christian ought to approach that with. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing something. Again, we're going to spend time devoted to that this morning. Knowledge is commended to us in the Bible. But if you take that knowledge and decide to parade yourself around as if you've got it, and you've got the answers, and every, you can figure out everything, and you've, and this, isn't, this is a tough issue, this meat sacrifice to idols thing. There's no thou shalt or thou shalt not that's going to easily answer this. So he's saying if someone's going to stand up and say, no, I know this is a tough issue, but I know the answers. If that's your approach, if that's your demeanor to things like this, you don't know anything as you ought to know it. Because a Christian ought to know that a Christian is not all-knowing. A Christian ought to know that there is a chance they are wrong about some things. A Christian ought to know that what we have from God's word is rock solid. But what we have from our own human reasoning and intellect may not be. A Christian ought to have some humility. And so he says... If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. In other words, the Christian's pursuit of knowledge happens within a framework, within the context of trying to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving God is the pursuit of the Christian. And the knowledge that comes as we love God comes as God knows us and makes us his children and brings us into his family and works in our life for a true our lives for a truly better understanding. Now, I want to talk about these verses here in just a few ways. And one, I want to make the point from the scriptures that knowledge is good. We have received the warning that it can feed pride. But knowledge is good. Um, you can turn to some of these or I can just read them to you, but we're going to go through a handful. The first verse is Romans chapter 11, verse 33. If you're handy with the scriptures and you can navigate back and forth, I'd encourage you to turn there. If not, then just listen. That's fine. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. This is Paul writing. And just listen and hear the wonder that he describes when it comes to knowing God. He writes, just one verse. All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul, who knows a lot about God, is marveling at the call to the Christian to pursue knowledge and understanding of God. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. As a Christian... God has invited you to know Him more. He has invited you to to plunge the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge that He has. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. He's not saying that in the sense of you shouldn't even try. He's saying that in the sense of you can spend a lifetime enjoying this Christian process of more closely knowing God and never reach the bottom of that well. Never get to the end of that rope. You can spend a lifetime plunging the depths of the riches of knowing God, of God's knowledge and God's wisdom. And that's an invitation that we receive. Think about what happens in and among God's people, the teaching that happens there. Why do we teach? So that we can gain and so that we can meditate on what we know about God. So we can gain knowledge about God. Why do we encourage? We encourage from a place of knowledge. If you're encouraging someone to follow the Lord, you're doing that based on what you know about God. Think about our Bibles. To what lengths has God gone to deliver to us scriptures so that we might know Him? And so Paul just wonders here, knowledge is not a bad thing, and it's not something to be discarded. There is no Christian here today who should think, well, I don't really need to know any of that. Are you kidding me? God has invited you to know Him. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Turn over to Romans 15, verse 14. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. This is Paul again. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish also one another. You are... Full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. You know what he's saying? I am confident, Christian people, he's writing to Christians, that because you are filled with knowledge, you are full of goodness. And being full of goodness, by what you know of God, you are able to use that knowledge of God and admonish other Christians to also do good. In other words, with a knowledge of God, with increasing knowledge, comes an understanding of good and evil that is profitable to you. Us being full of goodness is related to us being filled with knowledge. Our ability to admonish one another to do what is good, to not do what is evil, comes to us by the goodness we have from knowing God. I mean, this is simple, right? A child has to be instructed what right is and what wrong is. Doesn't he? Doesn't she? Of course. We have to know what's good and evil because before we're any practical use to anybody else. So Paul says, I'm confident that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish each other. So he's complimenting him, the people here in Romans, connecting knowledge to our understanding of good and evil. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So this is the same letter. If you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. I'll start reading in verse 4. It says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him. By who? By God, Right? You, Corinthians, were enriched in everything by God, in all utterance and in all knowledge. Knowledge comes from God. We're not deterred from knowing God. It comes from God. Here again is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Knowledge of God comes from the Spirit of God. Here's 2 Corinthians 2:14. "Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Knowledge comes to the believer by God. And then, listen to that again, through us, through Christians, God diffuses, like when you press the button on a spray bottle and you diffuse a fragrance. God diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place through Christians. God gives us knowledge of him and then he spreads that knowledge, the fragrance of his knowledge, he spreads it to every place through his people who have received knowledge of God and who are now sharing knowledge of God to others. So there's, there is something Fundamental in the Christian faith that you have got to commit yourself to. This is not a mindless religion. It is not a thoughtless religion. There are mindless religions in the world. There are mindless copies of true Christianity in the world. There are churches that never ask their people to think, that never ask them to sit and listen to any teaching. There are all sorts of religions wrapped up in feelings and sentiment and emotion, which in and of itself is nothing wrong, but devoid of knowledge and instruction and teaching. This is not a mindless faith. We're meant to know God, we're meant to explore the knowledge of God. And my goodness, Christians are not allowed to pull up short at the end of this. Do you know your Bible? I would shudder, I think, to imagine the free pass that many of us have given ourselves pretending we know God's word without actually devoting ourselves to any real study of it. Do you know God's word? I'm not saying you have a deadline. In fact, I've already said you don't. You can plunge the depths of the knowledge of God for all your life and only grow and never reach the bottom and never reach the end. But a Christian can't stop and say, I know enough, I'm all done. I can read the same passage of God's word over and over again, year after year, and have it punch me in the soul a different way every single time. When I read the Bible and I cry, I don't cry because the same thing every single time. When I read the Bible and I'm moved, when I read the Bible and I'm energized, it's not the exact same thing every time, but there is a freshness and a depth to knowing God that comes in conjunction with living for God. So as you live for God and read his word, it hits you in a new way every time. There are passages about how to deal with death. And you know that one way when you read those passages as a 12-year-old, but you know it a very different way when you read those passages as a 50-year-old. There are passages about sacrifice and love that you read one way in Sunday school as an 8 year old but you read another way as a 38 year old. There is no end to the depth of knowing God because God is not a textbook. God is a person. God is eternal. God's mind is far beyond our mind. His ways far beyond our ways. And He has invited you to know Him and given you what you need to know Him. And you, Christian, would withdraw from that and say, I know enough. Please! Forfeit the riches of that in your life because you're bored or busy? My goodness! This is not a mindless faith. This is a powerful faith. And when our faith becomes impotent, powerless, It's often because our desire to know God more has paused, has halted. We have become distracted, fascinated by knowing other things, fascinated by chasing other experiences. Knowing God is a privilege. Would you turn to Ephesians 3 for me? I just want to read to you this verses 8 through 19, without exposition, without teaching. Just read the passage to you. Here's Paul writing to the Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 8. Listen. I guess perhaps you have to know a little about Paul to get all of this, but you don't have to know anything about him to get some of it. So listen to Paul writing about himself. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant to you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, here it is, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is a beautiful passage. Paul considered it a privilege, even though it meant his own personal suffering. To be able to tell people some small part, in some small way, with each passing conversation about the love of Jesus Christ. And he commends to them, understand, see that word, verse 18, comprehend with all God's people, what is the width and length and depth and height? To know, to know the love of Christ which passes, passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here he writes in Colossians 2, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and all those in Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh... "...that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love with one another, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ." Paul is saying, I want you to be knit together in your love with each other, as you know God, knowing God knits His people together connects his people but listen to this to the knowledge of the mystery of god both of the father and of christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in jesus all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are there to be explored and understood You can devote yourself to study and knowledge, to understanding the world, to understanding human relationships, to understanding human psychology, to understanding finance, to understanding on and on and on. There is no end to the amount of human knowledge that you can devote yourself to. But in Christ, all knowledge that is true knowledge can be delved into so that what you know ends up being a treasure to your life. And apart from Christ, you can know everything there is to know in the world and it not do you one bit of good. There is no treasure in advanced algebra apart from Christ. There is no treasure in advanced science apart from Christ. There is no treasure in advanced basketball because of Christ. There is no treasure in advanced relationships apart from Christ. All the treasure... And all the knowledge and wisdom in the world, comes to the Christian by way of knowing Jesus Christ. This is something we should be committed to. Knowledge, without the commitment to know the treasure of Jesus in that knowledge, puffs up. But knowledge, infused with the power of knowing our Lord, is a treasure, is a treasure. And it's commended to us Now, Changing gears for 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to remind you with four things, and this is not an exhaustive list, what love is. Because again, if you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you remember, we're told knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Four things that love is. Number one, love is sacrifice. This is 1 John chapter 3, I'll just read verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. By this we know love. What is love? Here's how we know love. He laid down his life for us. Love is sacrifice. In John's conclusion, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? I don't mean are you laying down your life to serve your family. Uh, Lost people who have no regard for God can do that. They don't all do it, but they can. Are you laying down your life because you love God's people the way that Jesus loved God's people? You say, well, they're not my biological family. Well, you're not Jesus' biological family either, friend. You're adopted into the family of God. Jesus loves you as a brother, as a sister, by way of your adoption. You look around and you see a lot of other Christian people who have been adopted into the family of God. Jesus laid down his life for adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you doing that? How do we know what love is? Love is sacrifice. Love is painful. Love is giving. It can be rewarding. It can be tremendously rewarding. It often is. But it's giving something of yourself. Second thing, love is sharing the gospel. Jesus has a a young man come up to him during his earthly ministry and says, what do I have to do to get in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you have to keep all the commandments. And this guy says, yeah, I do that. I keep them all and you might expect Jesus whose mission it was to come to the earth and die on the cross because no one could keep all the commandments you might expect him to get a little frustrated by that and upset but do you know what it says in mark chapter 10 verse 21 it says when the man said that it says then Jesus looking at him loved him and he said one thing you lack go your way and sell whatever you have and give it to the poor you'll have treasure in heaven come take up your cross and follow me now that's the call of salvation that's the gospel Quit clinging to what you have in this world and serve Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Follow Him. By faith, accept the forgiveness offered to you and Him alone. Not by keeping laws, but by trusting Jesus. It says, Then he looked at Him and loved Him and said that. Love is sharing the gospel. My great-grandpa, on either side of my family, my great-grandparents... The whole myriad of them were not real faithful believers. There was lots of sin. Um, My grandparents were not raised in Christian homes. To an extent, my father was not raised in a Christian home, to a large extent. My grandpa, on my dad's side, he got saved later in life. He was a hard man. Military man. I'm not saying that any of them were bad people by the world standards. A couple of them were. Most of them weren't. But my whole family line has been changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For multiple generations, love is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith that some will be saved. And my, my dad and my aunt and my uncle all went to the same church, they all heard the same lessons, they sat on the same teaching. Of the three, my dad has faithfully served the Lord his entire life. Someone shared the gospel with him and he believed. They shared the gospel presumably with a lot of other people, but one little boy believed. and a whole generation, a line of people were changed. And when I look at my children, I'm thankful for that person who I don't know who shared the gospel with my dad. My mom was saved. Because my dad shared the gospel with my mom. Love is sharing the gospel. Jesus knew that. Jesus did that before the gospel was even complete at the cross. Jesus is sharing the gospel. Why? Because he looked at a man who thought he was righteous. Because he was a good person. And he loved him. And he loved him enough to cut to the heart of the real problem. So that the guy was trying to get into heaven by the skin of his own back. By the good works of his own life and he's not good enough and you're not good enough you need jesus christ must have been very conceited for jesus to tell someone can you imagine before jesus died on the cross can you imagine one man saying publicly to another man yeah you lack one thing in your perfection you're not following me with all your life must have sounded must have sounded like the height of arrogance huh Jesus wasn't concerned with what other people thought about his message. He loved the man, and so he told him the truth. The third thing love is compassion. Love is compassion. Jesus uh, was in Jerusalem, and there was a pool, and it was on the Sabbath, and there was a man who would always try to rush down into this pool of water to be healed. And Jesus looked at the man and healed the man, but it was on the Sabbath. Many of the Jews believed because of scriptures and their great knowledge of the scriptures believed that healing on the Sabbath was the same as working on the Sabbath. And so Jesus had just done something wrong by their evaluation. And this is what he says of those guys in John chapter 5 verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Look, eternal life comes to us from the gospel. We get the gospel from the scriptures, but simply knowing Bible verses is not salvation. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these, these scriptures, are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. How did he know that? They had no compassion for this man. See a man healed and given his life back and they're not moved with compassion. They're not happy. They're not grateful for the man. What are they? They're bitter because they think their knowledge of God has given them the power to judge the Son of God. (laughs) He says, you don't know me. (laughs) You think you've got salvation in all of the Bible verses and the human reasoning you've put together and you've got no compassion. You do not have the love of God in you. Christian, (laughs) do not live your life in a way that's going to bring that kind of condemnation down on you. How many of you have had someone come up to you at the gas pump and ask for 20 bucks and tell you their sob story, and all your heart is moved with is the coldness and the callousness of? It's probably not true. I'll probably give it to them to just go spend it on alcohol and booze. It's probably not fair. On and on and on. Hey, you may be right. You may be right. You might give that money to that person, they may go straight to the liquor store. You may be right. But that sure isn't compassion. You know what? God's going to judge the guy for going straight to the liquor store. He doesn't need your help. If God has let you help somebody, if God has given you a chance to diffuse the knowledge of God into the world, then do it. You don't know what it's going to do, you don't know. Jesus didn't put this man through the steps. Uh, how did he get crippled? What's he going to do with this new life I give him? Probably not worth healing him. He's just going to go squander it. He didn't do any of that. At one point, he heals 10 lepers. One of them came back to say thank you, and the other nine just went their separate way. Glad to be healed. Did he make a mistake with the other nine? Love is compassion. And if you have the love of God in your heart, you are a person who is moved with compassion. Jesus is moved with compassion in his example, in his life. Not just here. Not just with the ten lepers. Over and over again. He is moved with compassion towards mobs of people who try to stone him and who crucify him. Love is sacrifice. Love is sharing the gospel. Love is compassion. And if you don't sense compassion in your life right now i'm not saying you're lost i'm not saying you don't have the love of god i'm saying something is wrong there are suffering and destitute people all around us if you never find yourself moved with compassion something is hard inside your heart that should be softer than that fourth thing and i'll stop here again this is not an exhaustive list but love is faithful Here is Jesus in John 15, verses 10 through 12. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You'll stay where you need to be because love is faithful. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved me? Well, let me tell you. He has loved me very patiently. Because I have given him a hundred billion ways to be unhappy with me and to be done with Reggie Osborne. (laughs) I have given him plenty of reasons to be finished with me. How has Jesus loved me? He has loved me very, very faithfully. How am I commanded to love and build others up? Very faithfully. Faithfully. If you are going to love me, you are going to have to put up with some stuff. If I'm going to love you, I'm going to have to put up with some stuff. That is how Jesus loves us. I'm not talking about you pretend sin isn't sin. I'm not talking about you gloss over the admonition we've already been encouraged to make in other people's lives regarding good and evil. But you are going to have to forgive and be patient and not think evil of other people and think good and hope all things. That is what love does. But if you have a limit to how many times I can offend you before you're done with me, I'll get there eventually. But that's not love. That's not love. And your marriage won't survive that. And your relationship with your kids won't survive that. Your relationship with God won't survive that. Your relationship with His people won't survive that. That is not the love of God. God is faithful in His love for us. So should we be. I'm going to close with the idea of knowing God then. What has God done so that we might know Him? This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Peter writing to Christians who were suffering. And this is what he says to suffering people. Okay? To this you are called. To suffering you are called. Now I don't know if you've ever been in a time of suffering in your life. I'm going to assume that you have. Imagine the Apostle Peter replying to your time of suffering with the somber words, you were called to this. You are not suffering by accident. You are not suffering outside of God's design. This is not meaningless or purposeless. But to this you were called. Now listen to what he says. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving then for us an example that you should follow his steps. He who committed no sin. Jesus didn't deserve his suffering. Nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled. When people talked Badly about him, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. What has God done that you might know Him? He's gone to the cross and He's suffered a sinner's death, though He wasn't a sinner. We find in knowing God, this required the gift of a son from a father. Says Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, when we were helpless to save ourselves, that's what he means, without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. You might be a good person, and there are not people lining up to die for you. Perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father gave his Son to save evil people, to adopt them into his family, that they might be dead to sin. That's what I read in 1 Peter chapter 2 having died to sins, that we might live for righteousness. A Father gave his Son. And here, finally, I'll close this morning with a note that in knowing God comes true human victory. Victory in Jesus. Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Now, listen to this. This is Paul's reasoning of all this. This It's his conclusion. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine? or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is God's love demonstrated to you in Christ Jesus that takes you from a world of suffering and makes you more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You may suffer with cancer. You may suffer with divorce. You may suffer with rebellions. You may suffer with being fired. You may suffer with prison. You may suffer with famine, with nakedness, with peril, with sword, and on and on and on. There is no limit to human suffering. And yet... The person who has been saved by the love of Christ is more than a conqueror, is victorious. How so? Because you pass from life to life and not life to death. Because you know God and are adopted by Him. Because you have an eternal inheritance that no power, no created thing can possibly separate you from. You know if you are a dad who loves your kids. You know, on Father's Day, you know the joy that it is to love your kids so much and to take a special time in their life and demonstrate to them how much you love them. There is nothing better as a father than to have a little selfish kid who, (laughs) you know, really, 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 really wants something and has been told, no, 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 and then finally as a dad to say, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I have given this to you. You know the joy of birthdays and Christmases. You know the joy of seeing your child have something and get something and achieve something that you have labored hard for and watching their face light up. Not all those things happen all the time. Not all of them are even healthy or good. But you can't deny the pleasure of giving a good gift to your child. Not if you love them. Not if you love them. God loves you. He has prepared a gift of all gifts for you. And nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing can take you from that favor. Nothing, no matter how amount of suffering and destitution you go through on this earth. Nothing in this world, no created thing, Paul says, can separate you from the love of God in Christ. There is a reward coming for the Christian. There is an inheritance coming for the Christian. So we can have victory through faith in Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, there are false messages and false gospels being peddled throughout all the world. Trust Jesus and you will be rich. Trust Jesus and you will be healthy. Trust Jesus and you will be happy. Trust Jesus and you will not suffer. But that is not the truth. The gift of knowing you comes to us as something more precious than the temporary ease and life of living in this world without pain. We will all have pain. But the gift of knowing you far surpasses that and that we can have eternal life through your son Jesus Christ and not merely live upon a hangar in heaven somewhere but live as an inheritance and inherit her of the great king of all creation. As your word says, we cannot even imagine what awaits the saints who love you. Father, what we ask now is that you'll put it in the hearts of people of sinners to love you that you will empower us by your Spirit to love you and thus lay hold, to ascertain, to cling to the victory that can be had only in you. And Father, I ask that you help us to love others, sacrificially, with the gospel, faithfully. Father, as we receive tithes and offerings now, please use them to the glory of your kingdom. Give us wisdom and discernment to do right. Help us to praise and honor you both with our finances, with our voice, and with our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.